Hi, it's Kate Brownfield from ADHDKidsCanThrive.com. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast. You can also keep up with me on social media at ADHDKidsCanThrive. We are going to kick off this next season of episodes with a replay with my guest, Maria Langavidia of MLG Advocacy and Consulting. She was so thorough and giving that it's worth another listen for parents preparing for IEP and 504 meetings this school year. Maria began her career in special education as a school psychologist. After 11 years, she became an elementary school principal for the next several years, then moved into the role of special education director where she remained for nine more years. Maria has worked on behalf of students with special needs ranging in ages from preschool through high school. She has experience with each of the 13 eligibility categories designated in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act as qualifying conditions for special education services. Her areas of special interest include child and adolescent mental health, autism spectrum disorder, specific learning disabilities, and attention difficulties. Let's get started. I welcome you, Maria. I'm so happy you're here. I think you're going to provide um, a lot of information to parents who are trying to figure out how to navigate their child through school when they have special needs. So let's, yeah, let's get started. Okay. Okay. Let's start from the top. Why does somebody need, why should any parent pursue an IEP or 504 for their child? Well, um, the the whole purpose of both of those programs is so that the child who has special needs is protected, um, right? When an individual has a disability, regardless of what type of disability, um, they have certain rights, um, like any other protected class. And for children, we want to make sure that those rights are especially protected in the school setting, because that's what that's what their life is about, right? We, we have jobs and careers and whatever. Well, the, the kid's job is to be in school and they have the right to access their education. So uh, those programs are put into place so in order for that to happen for the kids. Okay. And then what would be the difference? Um, so we're, sp- we're focusing primarily on a kid who has ADHD, but they may have other issues going on, like uh, learning disabilities or yeah. anxiety, and more depression. More often than not, they do. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's common. So would, so do parents need to pursue an IEP or a 504? Like what would be the difference? And does the school help you figure out what you well, need? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a a well, in my opinion, a well-run special ed program will help you figure that out, will help parents figure that out. Um, It used to be that those two programs were very, very different from each other, and they still, at their core, are different um, in terms of the focus. Uh, But more and more over time, um, the 504 program or the the laws around those program that program have evolved, have broadened, right? So there are more and more um, uh, services and uh, as well as accommodations that you can get through a 504 plan. Um, 
the thing that I would always look for as a director is at, at what point does um, a student who originally may be qualified for a 504, at what point are his or her needs uh, more, you know, more complex or, or more kind of comprehensive that they really should be being served by a uh, an IEP instead of solely a 504. So those are kind of diagnostic and um, uh, kind of pra professional practice questions that a good team is always looking at in with, you know, through that lens for any student with disabilities who's qualifying for either program. Okay, so, and okay, and if a parent is seeing their child struggle, but they haven't been identified yet to be in special ed, where would a parent go to initiate their concerns, like thinking, okay, I need my child to, you know, I want to see if they have them assessed, like where do they start inside the school? So always a good place to start is your classroom teacher. Um, that's kind of the point of entry. Um, that person, um, you know, ideally is your is the parent's partner in 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 uh, you know making sure that the student is getting their education and a good education. Um, so that would be a good starting point. And every district, the culture of every district is always a little bit different you know so i mean there are general guidelines but all you know districts do things kind of whatever their local practices so that teacher would know that know what that is and would be able to help guide the family uh, through that process um so you know a verbal a conversation with the teacher is always a good place to start um, you can't go wrong by simply writing a letter to uh, the principal or the director of special education Re expressing, you know, writing about your concerns and requesting an assessment directly. You can always do that. Um, and then um, that's a more kind of formal process. And then all the legal kind of protections around um, parents asking for assessments kick in when you put it in writing. Okay. So you can definitely do go that route um, if you, if you, if a parent feels more comfortable doing it that way. But either way, we'll activate the system. Um, and, and you know, the important thing is to bring it to someone's attention that you have a concern. Right, okay. And so you're a special education advocate now in your work. Uh -huh. So yes. when would a parent bring someone like you in? Why would they ever need to use a special ed advocate to help well, them? You know what? It used to be that you would um, a parent would seek out an advocate or even a lawyer, which is different from an advocate. When things get to the point where everybody's kind of knocking knocking heads, right? There, there's a lot of um, um, disagreement and dispute going on. Uh, a lot of uh, negative feelings have come about. So then. In the old days, um, that's when an advocate or a lawyer would come about. Now what I'm seeing and what I like to do is I'm seeing a lot of parents being more proactive. They understand that this is a very complicated system. It's a very legalistic system. There are a lot of rules and a lot of um, compliance issues um, that go on. And so they want to be educated and they want to know. So I have quite a number of clients who hire me just to kind of help guide them and, you know, even behind the scenes, teach them about 
what's, you know, what's happening, interpreting things for them, you know, helping them understand what, what is, um, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Um, I have some clients where I never even go to the IEP meeting with them. I'm just meeting with them before and after to, to prepare them or to debrief with them after so that, um, and they're functioning pretty independently in the IEP meetings with that kind of behind the scenes support. In other cases, they still want somebody with them at the meeting. They want a spokesperson. They want somebody who can um, kind of on the spot know, you know, know how to respond or what to say or, you know, how to kind of prompt them to, to uh, um, you know, ask a question or, or participate in, you know, say something in particular when it's warranted. So there's that range kind of on the other end of the spectrum of how an advocate can be used. Um, so there's a whole lot of different ways that that somebody can use a person like me. Um, and it's really customized to the situation. Yeah. Okay. All right. And so once you establish your IEP and 504, there's usually this very, very long list of accommodations. So in my own personal experience, usually not every single one of those accommodations work or need to be used. So my question is, why are there so many accommodations? And then how, as a parent and the child, do they, do you kind and the teacher probably figure out which ones really work for the child to help them get through that particular class or the school year? How so, do you navigate that? Yeah. So. Yes, I've seen a lot of documents where there's a whole laundry list of things. Um, and I think the key to keeping it in a manageable, uh, manageable is for that team to really do the work of what really, what will not to just um, write them in because that's what all, uh, you know, all 504 plans say, you know, right. but to really customize it for that particular child. Um, and, and really to ask the question that you're asking, like, is this really manageable? Can we really implement this? Which are the most effective for the student? Um, do we want to pick four or five and start there and see, see if that's sufficient? The, the thing about an IEP and a 504, which by the way, IEPs have a section in them where you can write accommodations in. So it's it's services and accommodations. So this could apply in either case. Um, is it they're living documents, right? They're not, it's not a document that once it's written, it's set in stone until the next year when you get together again. Things can be adapted and amended and changed and reviewed anytime. So it, it could be that at the beginning. There does there does need to be more than one meeting to kind of hone it, you know, and and refine it and make sure that it's working for the child. Um, so uh, that's a um, that's a um, kind of a process that the team can adopt in order to make it really a, a meaningful document and not just a rubber stamp or a, right. car, a, a carbon copy of every five hundred four that exists in the school. Right. Like, oh, this child has ADHD. Right. Here's the list of accommodations here's the, here's, for yeah. the most common accommodations for kids with right. ADHD. Yeah. And that's really, that's the opposite of the spirit of both of those programs, right? The idea of, of those is that a child with special needs can't just 
the the mold doesn't fit for that child like maybe it does for the majority of children but not for that child and we have to make something customized and tailored for that child in order for them to access their education so if we're behaving with 504 plans and IEPs like we do with general education, one size fits all, that defeats the purpose. It should be just the opposite. So parents can challenge that. You know, they can um, uh, they can um, work to make sure that whatever the team is discussing, it pertains to only your child and not to every child that has that particular diagnosis or or condition. Right. Okay. All right. Um, so talk to me about how a parent, you know, you develop your IEP. How does the parent talk to the teacher in a positive way without screaming and yelling? I mean, part of me is so listening important. to talk is, I think it's probably a challenge for the teacher, right? To be completely custom with a child or a couple children in the classroom. So I've, I recognize that that could be a challenge mm -hmm. to live that out day to day as a teacher. So how does a parent work with the teacher in a positive way and try not to have that relationship go negative? Well, I know this probably sounds like pie in the sky, right? Because when it comes to our kids, we there's so much emotion that we have, you know, and we're, you know, parents who are struggling with their child um, having whatever kind of disability, there's always a level of grief and, and grieving that's going on. And sometimes that comes out, you know, in, an, uh, in, a, in a way that shows their frustration or their pain. So it's hard. It's hard to keep ourselves in check like that. Um, but that is really important to do um, that, you know, it, it's important to assume positive intentions, assume that a teacher, you know, the majority of teachers are there because they want to be, you know, they want to help, they want to be good teachers, they want to help every child. Um, so it's important to be patient. I think it's also a good idea to have, you know, if in the process of setting up the I, the 504, this happens automatically with an IEP, but not always with a 504, to have a third person involved um, that like the school psychologist or a school counselor or, you know, for kids in, in higher in like, say, middle school where there's more than one teacher to have a couple of teachers that are, you know, kind of point people or case managers so that um, you can kind of spread it around and not only one person is always kind of your go to person. So if they're busy or if they don't have any time, you know, at this moment to talk to you, maybe the other person does or maybe the other person can be a go between to kind of help that communication um, that the more the merrier. Right. It takes a village. So the more people that we have around us as parents to help us. Uh, the 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 more I think the more positive the experience and the better the outcome. Right, and the better. But the I do. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, just the better the communication. Yeah, I think. I, I'll share with you. I, I did have a a long time ago when I was a principal. Um, I had um, an experience with a, a a parent who became very ugly and aggressive with a with a teacher. Um, so from the other point of view. Um, 
you know, and I always coach parents I work with on this as well. Nobody wants to be yelled at. Nobody wants to be on the receiving end of, um, you know, something that feels threatening. Um, so uh, it it doesn't serve anybody for for uh, and for your child especially for those relationships to go down that path. So anything we can do, even if we're you know even if we're frustrated for a, a, a rightful reason, um, anything we can do to keep things on a on a civil and a civilized level is super important for your child. And for, yes, for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So as a parent, what is the balance of communicating with your teacher and the school psychologist? When is it too much? When is it not enough? I think every parent kind of struggles with how much, how yeah. much do you interfere with the, just the process of the child learning? Right. And how, yeah. when, when do you let things let some failure happen for the child and you just let them experience that versus letting it turn into like a sinking ship. I think parents struggle with that balance of, yeah, that is, that is really tricky. And honestly, Kate, I don't, I don't know if there's like one pat answer for that. Every situation is so unique. I, I do think that, um, I think that parents have to be kind of, always be mindful of um, how how we're being received on the other end, right? Um, and think about um, how, um, it, if we were say the teacher or the, pro the professional and being bombarded say with email, how would you feel? You know, you, you would have a hard time keeping up with that and um, having, um, having a positive outlook on the, on the entire situation. On the other hand, we don't want, you know, we don't want our child to, to struggle. So either, and if we're seeing things that um, that uh, maybe the, isn't evident to the teacher and it's information that he or she should have, then, then we need, to, it's our obligation to pass it on. So I would say, you know, a regular correspondence, you know, not a daily correspondence that doesn't help, but a regular correspondence that's short, and succinct and to the point um, by email is usually easiest for teachers, I think, rather than in showing up in person or even a phone call. Voicemail is really hard to keep up with. Yeah. Um, but, you know, periodic emails are not bad. It's also not a bad idea when you're setting up the program, either 504 or IEP, if if communication needs to be, um, you know, called out specifically as a a feature of that program of that child's um, IEP or 504, have a conversation with the team and let it be a team decision. So everybody buys in to what will the course, what will the communication be like? Is it going to be in writing? Is it going to be in person? Is it going to be an email? Are we just going to agree that for the first four months, we're going to meet every three or four weeks in person? Um, and have a conversation and give feedback to each other, you know, have it be something that's um, memorialized in the IEP so that it's not just the parent that's kind of um, nagging or, you know, being overly persistent um, and, and you don't want that perception, uh, but you do want the channels of communication to be open. 
Right. And positive. Uh Right. Okay. And so how does that evolve as the child matures? Because certainly by the time they get into junior high and high school, you're trying to help have them find their independence right in the classroom and maybe have, you know, they're going to have their wins and their, the ebbs and flows, the highs and the lows. So what do you recommend for parents kind of when, how do you stay in the background on that? And then. Yeah. You know, that's a rude awakening for any parent, isn't it? I remember so clearly when, when my oldest went from elementary school where I was super involved to middle school where I was told, you know, no, we're not going to talk to you. You know, it, I mean, there was definitely a, a, a hands-off kind of a message from, from the teachers. It was a rude awakening. So I think developmentally all parents go through that anyway. But then there's that added layer of, of kind of anxiety for parents uh, who have uh, kids that are receiving uh, services. Um, and I, I think that you know, I, I I don't, I think my best advice in that would be to just kind of follow your instincts. And, you know, there's always, at least at the beginning, there are, you know, a, a number of meetings, you know, we are, we know them as transition meetings, right? And sometimes it's one and done. And sometimes it's two or three or four, because it takes time to get through everything. And maybe that one situation might be more complex than another. Um, so I, I think though that once that is set up, it is important for parents to step back and let their child fly, you know, let them figure things out on their own and be like we are for other parenting, you know, issues for older kids is like, we're there, we're, we're all kind of monitoring, you know, carefully monitoring and observing, but we're not always necessarily inserting ourselves. Um, and we have to kind of call upon a little bit of wisdom to figure out you know, when is the moment and when isn't the moment? Um, so just like any, any parent would do. Right. There's a little bit more of a dance. Exactly. And it, and it will change. Um, it will be, uh, there is a, a strong emphasis. I, again, I'm thinking of the transition from elementary to middle, which is, I think preschool to elementary and then elementary to middle are probably the hardest ones for parents. Um, of uh, kids with special needs. Um, And um, so I think that um, it's important to just kind of keep a monitor on yourself and know that this is a natural process. And it's not just because your child has um, an IEP or a 504 that you're, you know, that um, you're kind of being asked to step back or being uh, kind of, you know, directed to step back a little bit. It's it's just the natural course of the child's development. And the, in a way that's something to celebrate, right? Because that's a normal experience that all children and all families have. So that's a, a typical experience that we can all participate in. Yeah, okay. And what's your wisdom about um, intervening as a, as a parent or the school with, um, as far as at what age? I think parents, especially in elementary, some try to ride the wave to oh. kind of see if their child will like mature out of these yeah. learning issues and that kind of thing. Do you, um, what is uh, your recommendation on that? If you're starting to see flags, probably yeah. in grades, in behavior, 
do you I ignore would, the flags or do you take action on the flags? What's your recommendation? I say take action. Um, I think, I think, you know, part of the a pull, pull to ignore is our kind of our normal natural uh, des denial and desire for things to be okay. Um, and so that's kind of an, an instinct that, that we we're kind of fighting against um, in terms of taking action. But I, in, you know, my observation over the years is that it's better early intervention is better than late intervention. And certainly late intervention is better than none. Right. Right. So um, it's never too late, but it's always optimal. The earlier, the better. Um, so trust your gut and trust your instinct. If, if something doesn't feel right, you know, call upon, uh, activate the systems around you to help with that. And it, it doesn't always necessarily mean that it'll lead to an IEP or a 504. There are plenty of non-special ed interventions in, in public schools that um, can be activated and utilized for kids that don't have, you know, uh, diagnosed special needs. Um, so check them Fantastic. out. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Find out what they are. Um, in fact, I would say there's a, you know, there's a tendency and and, a, and it's a good tendency to keep kids out of special ed if there's anything that can be done otherwise, you know. And so, um, you know, it's it's good to tap into those and see what those interventions are. Yeah. OK, that's wonderful advice. Mm -hmm. All right. So our time with you is wrapping up. Is there any oh. other words of wisdom you'd like to share? No, um, I think. um I think you know that what I what I would say to parents and what I what I have seen is that um, everything always works out in the end, right? I mean, there are always things look sometimes look feel dark and look dark or feel very sorrowful, but um, it's there are many happy moments and many joyful things that happen for all kids, and so hang in there if if you're struggling and know that there those uh, joys will, will come to you as well. Very good. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kate. It was fun to do this with you. You're very welcome.